Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I'm honored to be speaking to the man before me. This guy is a genius in my opinion. He has uh, yeah. worked on <laughs> the Metroid uh, Prime Trilogy, the Donkey Kong Country Returns game, uh, Doom. Now he's currently creative director at Booz Hamilton, working in a lot of the multimedia space, working with uh, technology to help train military and uh, nurses in the CDC, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And all sorts of stuff. Yeah, we and do, all uh, other stuff. We, I mean, we could yeah. go on forever about all the stuff that you've done and will continue to do, I'm sure. So thank you for taking the time out. Well, my pleasure entirely. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one thing I've always been curious about is the development of uh, Metroid Prime because when you True. read up about the development about it, I liken it to the Lord of the Rings film trilogy. It seems like it was supposed to be a bit of a disaster in terms of it, it just seemed like everything was set in motion for it not to work, but somehow it all worked. And uh, I just want to know like, how how it managed to happen and how you got it off the ground and not get overwhelmed by the pressure, obviously, of having to take well, this IP yeah. Yeah, from it, Nintendo. It, it was interesting. It was um, Nintendo gave us the IP because we had done a prototype for an original IP that was a first person shooter we were working on right so we actually had the fundamentals uh in place and then nintendo saw it and said they, they really liked it they're like well this is really good why don't we turn this into metroid hmm. and so we actually had it functionally you know we had enemies we had a we had a world built out you could run around you could do things in and um even our layout uh, level layouts that we were working on at the time the way that everything kind of fit together flowed naturally into the idea of a metroid game and uh, so from a design standpoint, and I'm a game designer, right? So uh, from a design standpoint, very early on, we had a notion of how it would all fit together. Now, a lot of the friction we got, uh, like in the in the general public perception was, oh my God, you've got a startup studio <laughs> doing this <laughs> yeah, beloved franchise. Right. They're so going to screw it up, right? And uh, and sure, you know, that's a, that's a valid, that's a valid way to feel. And uh, we, we really took it seriously. And uh, at the beginning, because the, the, the Metroid Prime team was very, very small, uh, and we made our own engine at the same time, we had 35 people on staff, period. It uh, is small. Yeah, it's, it's really, really small. And um, the only way it actually worked um, was rigorous design, uh, the way everything fit together, the way the, 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 the flow of the game was modular in nature. So that if we had to adjust something, we could adjust it in isolation. However, the real trick was everything is interconnected, right? So you had to understand what the flow of action and reaction is, because it was kind of like a Rube Goldberg machine, right? So I go and I pick up the, the ice beam, you know, the ice spreader or whatever. And when I picked that up, it would set a relay off that would go to dozens and dozens of switches across the game that were all manually scripted it wasn't programmatically scripted because this was a stone age a billion years ago when we made the game mm. so you would do this one thing and it would set a, a, a sequence of events across the entire game under the under the cover as it were and change the states of everything so that when you go back through a room its loadout might change the, the player experience would change and uh, at one point very early on we had a graph paper uh, map of the whole thing up on the wall in mine and Carl's office where we had mapped out the entire game on graph paper. And uh, yeah, I'm not even kidding. And and the real key to it was um, we built prototype rooms uh, before we would hand it off to art. We called them blue rooms, right? So we would map it in a blue grid and uh, get all the gameplay nailed down and then hand it to art 
Oh, and then right. Art would go in and beautify it over the top and make sure all the gameplay still functioned. And then we would go and tweak it one last time to take advantage of like the color and the lighting and stuff like that in, in ways that you couldn't when you were doing blue rooming prototyping. So what that meant is early on, we were relatively slow in production in, in, in final content, but the last probably six months of production uh, was laying in about 75 to 80% of the game. Right, so front front loading was putting all that together. The rest of it was just pouring all the content in, and it really worked. It, it uh, uh, and and to uh, the engineers' credit and designers' credit and artists' credit at Retro, um, uh, the nature of the engine that we built to do all that um, is was called the called Rude R U D E for the Retro Universal Design Engine. Right. And uh, and it was really powerful. In, in in many respects, it was it's still more powerful than like um, uh, from a design standpoint, from from a scripting standpoint, from an authoring standpoint, than any engine out there. Right? You can connect any object to any object to send any message that you want. So if you understand how the system works as a designer, you can create extraordinarily complex scripting systems to do all sorts of mechanics without having to have an engineer involved at all, right? To create it. So like um, in, in the Metro games, when we had we had one one of the games, we had a turret that you blow it up and a space pirate corpse would fly out, right? Because it was a little man turret that was up there. And that was all scripted, right? So that a designer actually took all the parts and made an explosion. We would turn off the, the when you destroyed the turret, we would turn off the model of the turret and spawn an explosion in that place that uh, a designer had put together. He had put together all the debris of a ball in a shape, given each debris a randomized vector for the explosion, added the particle effects, and then took a space pirate. Turn, we had turned on a space pirate ability uh, for Ragdoll. So he becomes a corpse with no AI. You can hold him by any bone in his body, and he would hang and wriggle. And we would spawn him and fling him out of the, uh, out of the uh, explosion of the debris using the system that we, that we had built for... Um, making objects follow paths. So we would accelerate an invisible box with a space pirate corpse tied to it out of the debris of the explosion and let the ragdoll take over. We would turn off the box after like, you know, three tenths of a second at velocity. The, the space pirate model would retain velocity and tumble away from the explosion. Right. And we did all that with no programmatic, other than to give us the ability to actually hook it all up by creating little objects. We created that all with designers. So it was a real powerful, uh, designer's engine, and, and that's why Metroid Prime, that's the series, um, is is so effective at creating a lot of gameplay with a very small production team. Yeah, yeah. So, how was it working in conjunction with Nintendo? Because obviously, you know Miyamoto, Tanabe, Sakamoto. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, sure they don't speak uh, very fluent English, right? So you well, they understand they, they understand English very well. Uh, speaking is a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Uh, they understand English very well. Speaking is a little bit more difficult. Uh, it's sort of I'm kind of inverse. Like I, I understand, you know, uh, I understand nice. Japanese pretty well, uh, but I speak it very poorly. And and right. uh, and you know, it's just it, it's just catching things, understanding how the the language goes together. But uh, so we would have a translator in there to help along. Tanabe is actually pretty good with English, he, he could work through it. And of course, uh, Risa-san, who was at the time Tanabe-san's assistant, but now she's, you know, a muckety muck over in Nintendo and she's just brilliant as well. And her English was quite good. Um, 
it was fun working with them. I love, I, a lot of people have problems working with Nintendo, but I think it's because they don't understand, uh, understand really how Nintendo functions. Um, and, and it's one, they, if, if it's correct, they don't praise you for it. They just don't <laughs> mention it. Right. You know, if you've done it right, that's their expectation is that you've done it right. Isn't that Japanese but, culture? It um, is. It's very yeah, much right. Yeah, but yeah. American developers, they're just not used to it. Yeah. Uh, and the second thing is if, they're perfectly willing to let you do your own thing. They just want you to defend it, right? right. Work through the logic on it, right? And uh, Miyamoto was was really hands off. You know, he he would review a few things, but we got very little direction from Miyamoto-san. He liked what he saw. Um, Tanabe-san was a little bit more hands on, but about a lot about a lot of edge things. And there were times where we had disagreements and stuff, but it was always you know just something we would work through. Mm. Um, uh, I think uh, the the one the, the one time I remember Miyamoto-san, uh, and he's really smart. He understands the design in a way that I I've never seen. I learned a lot, you know, from him over the years. Um, we were doing Donkey Kong Country Returns, and um, he was running into the corner, you know, with with DK. We had the DK package running early on, and he would kick up a little bit of dust and go into the corner, kind of. And he did this for like a long time, for like twenty minutes. And we're like, what do we do wrong? Or like, what is he finding? You know, and it turns out um, he said, well, what if he was looking at the particle effects on the dust, right? And uh, he was looking for. He said, well, what if when you did this with the controls, Donkey Kong, you know, DK would blow <sighs> like that, create air coming out of his mouth. We're like, what? <laughs> and, and you know, and we're thinking, well, and it, some of the team was resistant to it and stuff um we're like sure we can do that and and the way i took it was that at the time we had dk's velocity the big gorilla moving through the jungle we had all that nailed right it was just it felt fun to run around as dk and jump and do those things and he felt like a heavy you know powerful uh protagonist in the game and uh, an avatar um but it was missing whimsy right it was missing that playful sense Mm. to the character right and so what Miyamoto-san was looking for he was looking for just a little gameplay element and so when he blows his face makes this expression it's really silly for a giant strong gorilla and he had his finger on the pulse immediately he knew what he wanted he wanted a little bit of, he wanted a little bit of flavor added to DK that was a little bit whimsical to it and it just did perfectly it was just it was a perfect call um, and that's kind of how, how he would get involved. Tanabe-san was a lot more about the nuts and bolts. Like we need more of these pickups here. We need to balance it there. Uh, and there, there was one kind of internally, I find it found it a, a case that I got frustrated with that, uh, we made right later. So in, in echoes, the second one, uh, there are two spider ball guardians or sp there's two spider boss guardians, right? There's the spider ball and the boost ball guardians. Mm -hmm. And they're notoriously difficult to beat, right? In the yeah. original versions, right? Murderously bad. Throw your controller on the ground and, you know, give Mike Wicken the finger wherever you are because, <laughs> you know, obviously it's... And that was a tuning change that was made in the last, uh, like, three days. Three days before, you sh before it was Before we went, we went gold, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and Tanabe-san just really fought for it. He's like, we need to make this tighter. We need to make this tighter. And we're like, no, it's already too tight. And we made it tighter, and it turned out to be way too tight, right? <laughs> and uh, so back when we uh, we did Trilogy, which was a, another interesting project, we had four of us uh, doing the entire Trilogy 
recompile. So four of us took a side and tore apart all three games and put them all together for trilogy and changed the control scheme. Right. Yeah. So just four of us. Right. That, no pressure or anything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, but what we got, we got to do is we got to go back in and, and uh, I was the only designer who had done all three games. Right. In, mm. On the team. So I knew where all the skeletons were buried and I had scripted most of the game and I designed all the AIs and I designed all, you know, did all that stuff. So I knew all the broken crap that was under the hood that I never could fix, you know, that most people would never even know was there. The, the people who were doing the speed runs knew that they were there because they, you know, beat against every corner of every room until they could find ways through. So uh, we had an opportunity with Trilogy to go fix those things, right? Because they've been bugging me ever since, dang it. Yeah. And uh, and so I went in and fixed, and I went back and I changed the Guardians back and let Tanabe-san know I'm fixing it back <laughs> the way it was. And he's like, okay, Wiccan-san, you're right. That's perfectly Okay. <laughs> And then we made a, uh, the Nintendo to tell you the seriousness that Nintendo takes the product with. Uh, they had gone through all of our texts, all of our uh, scans from all three games, and done a complete spreadsheet analysis on how it all fit together with the Metroid Prime universe in its current state, right? Like every word. Oh wow! And then they sent they sent us hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of edits and changes for all the texts. So to make sure, make sure everything harmonized and worked in the Metroid universe. That's the level of detail that they put into it. So we were coming, but a lot of our probably 50, 60% of the work we did on the trilogy was changing those dang <laughs> scan files. Which is a lot. Because how many, how, who actually wrote all the, the, uh, all the scans, all the scans, well, it, all the law, everything. It, it, it depended on which game we were doing. Like early on, it was Carl Deckard. Yeah. who uh, was, he's also the genius designer who did on Metroid Prime 1, he was in charge of our player package, right? Ah, uh, right. So uh, he is, he hit out all of Samus's controls and everything else like that. He did the front end and he also did lore. And in Metroid Prime 2, he invented the Luminoth language. Remember the, all the, the circles and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Those are the Luminoth knuckles in three-dimensional space. Ah. So when you see, when you see the, the strings and dots and stuff, those are... The Luminoth don't have any vocalization. They speak with their hands. So when they hold up their hand, their, their, their uh, joints and their fingers are bulbous, right? Yeah. So when they're speaking to another Luminoth, they're orienting their hands towards the viewer and making things like that. And that's what the written text is. I don't think, a, I think most people would never pick that up, right? They, they never would. And it's, that, it's a and that's subtle a level detail. Yeah, yeah, and Carl and Carl was a. I mean, I was a fan of Metroid. I, I loved the the games, but Carl lived it right. Mm. So he was the right guy to do all the lore and stuff. And and then after two, uh, he left the company and went to do other other cool stuff. I think last I heard, he was working uh, out in California um, with Magic Leap and uh, Neil Stevenson, mm. the author, uh, out there. I'm not sure what he's doing right now. But uh, he's just really good designer. And so while he was doing that, I was doing the, the, I did all the prototyping on the levels. I did all the level layout. I did all the AI design. I did all the boss fight designs. I did all that stuff and then scripted it all together. So how did you learn all this stuff? Because your background is, you know, painting, <laughs> like ink brush. Like, that's yeah, I'm a classically trained fine yeah, artist. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I even did some work in the Babylon 5 franchise and, and stuff back in the day. So, because it's um, not like you had access to YouTube or Google. No. And, uh, and no so, no, how uh, did you learn all this stuff? Uh, the hard way uh, by doing, right? Oh, so um, repetition and just yeah, um, picking up and doing we, it. 
Yeah, uh, and, and I had reasons. So uh, when I first got in the game business, I was hired as a concept artist for the a little startup company down in Orlando called Endspace. Mm. And uh, uh, I'm a real fast artist uh, as an illustrator, and I can draw in uh, three dimensions with ink line without having to pencil things. Uh, it's my stupid human trick. I'm really, that's, really fast at three-dimensional objects, right? That's and, a good uh, trick. I'm less good at painting, but I'm adequate. Uh, I'm pretty good with an airbrush. Um, but, uh, when I was hired to concept in, I went crazy. I was like, oh, this is gonna be the coolest thing. And I, and in the first three months of the project, I illustrated, uh, 411 by 17 pieces of art, you know, and I suddenly realized after three months that I'd illustrated everything you could illustrate for the game. <laughs> Not a really great plan for long-term career prospects. And, uh, so I said, well, I better start figuring out how to help in other ways, because we were, we had seven people on the team, including the, the, the studio startup owners. Mm. And, um, this is PlayStation one back in 1993 in the stone age when dinosaurs roamed the, roamed the earth. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, we had uh, 3d studio release three, which was way before max came out. So I said, well, I'll teach myself how to, to, 3d model because at the time uh 3d models were relatively uncomplex you know if you know if my my budget for a uh, a uh, enemy ship for example in that game was about 120 tries oh wow quads right yeah. on playstation one uh so i was like ah, i could do that and, and i started with a cube how do i make a cube how do I turn this cube into something else? How do I turn that something else into something else? How do I weld all the seams? How do I weld all the vertices? How do I make this efficient polygonally? How do I apply texture maps? And so I learned step-by-step step fundamentally by doing. And uh, by the time my first game uh, shipped, I made uh, probably a third of all the real-time models. Uh, I had also um, taken over as, as company lead designer uh, by default because we were, we were behind schedule and uh, on the project we were working on before Tiger Shark, which never shipped, but it was on the back of the first PlayStation box. And uh, to buy more time, uh, they came back in a week, you know, Sony's coming down because Sony had funded our startup. And uh, we need to show them something. And we didn't have a, when they left to go meet with Sony, they didn't have any, uh, a level finished. And while they were gone, I just designed the rest of the, of the game levels and built a, a prototype level to teach myself how to design the levels. And uh, they came back and they said, they followed us back. They're going to come into the office. We've got to show them something. And I'm like, well, here's a level and here's the rest of the design. And they said, okay, you're now lead designer, Mike. And so then I taught myself audio tools uh, and I taught myself, uh, you know, hire the attorneys. And, and uh, the, the upshot is um, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, right? And um, I've never been scared of technology and um, I'm really hard-headed. You know, you called me a genius earlier. I don't know if I, that's accurate. I am relentless, right? I don't give up ever. There's, there's, <laughs> if you get me involved with something, there's zero chance I'm get, giving up. It doesn't matter. I'm in and let's get this through to the end. So th that's, that's kind of how I did it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Short version. Now, yeah. now I know you, you grew up in the military. Uh, I did. So, yeah. So Ooh, how you've done your research. Oh. I have done my research. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you assign some of that, that you learned from that? into say metroid prime and doom for example well uh now my dad uh was a career uh, army officer and he was a company commander in vietnam uh, two silver stars two bronze stars uh, he was u.s army ranger he fought the first battle of the tet offensive in 
so he's a real hard charger and, uh, and he also hunts and fishes. So I grew up hunting and fishing. And so I was conversant with arms and, and, uh, and I hung around with guys whose job it was to break, break things and, and shoot things. And so I understood really well, uh, particularly bathroom reading. So I had like field manual 100-3 and the U.S. Army Ranger manual was my bathroom reading growing up. You know, nothing like an eight-year-old kid understanding how to mix and make plastic explosives and stuff. It seems to be normal in every household, right? <laughs> and uh, so I understood the concept of friction, right? So and friction in a military sense is when you have two opposing forces meeting in the field, whether or not it's friction of battle, where you're fighting each against each other, or it's friction of maneuver, where you're trying to maneuver your, your enemy into a position where they're disadvantageous and they'll break off contact. And all the variety of friction that you have, I was really conversant with that at a very, very young age, and I never thought anything about it. You know, I have all this huge thing locked up in my head for all this information. And then uh, when I had the opportunity to design, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is how you do it. This is how you set up an enfilade. This is how you <laughs> how, <laughs> how you lay down covering fire." And if if I was a if I was a space pirate, what would I do here? If I was a, a, a enemy submarine, where would I lurk to ambush the you know the, the player? How would I use this terrain? How would I use this cover? And so it came naturally to me uh, from not only setting up scenarios but AI design and understanding the think how to model the thinking of opposition uh, with relatively primitive tools because most game engines you see use finite state machine driven mechanics. They're essentially uh, complex flowcharts, right? If this does that, then I do this, right? Oh, That's right. how almost all AIs function uh, in games. Uh, and because of that, so when I when I design an AI, I'll generate a flowchart to begin with to start the programmer off in the right direction. This is the kind of game flow that I want with this enemy. This is what I want it to do. And then the program will come in and say, okay, using these tools this is what I generated and then we'll tweak it from there. But yeah, that's uh, I know it's off topic, but yeah. That's still fascinating though still very fascinating so you it's know, interesting yeah, yeah so because you sketched and designed every single boss in the trilogy am i right uh i did yeah uh sometimes i did sketches sometimes i did really rudimentary in fact i uh, i had to stop doing real sketches of creatures because it's problematic right if i if i give an artist a ai design with an actual piece of art they just make that right uh, right and and that's not what i want when i work with a team I want everyone to put their own special sauce on it, right? I want them to come up with their own thing, right? Because they need mm. to own it, right? The whole point isn't for Mike Wicken to own it. The point is for the artist to own it and the developer to own it and me to nudge them where I think it needs to go for the design, right? My function is to make sure that the, the, the elephant that I've designed and I hand off all the pieces of the elephant. Okay, engineer, you build the trunk. Artist, you build the tail. You know, producer, you're in charge of the legs and I'm in charge of the body or whatever, right? All of us make these different parts in different areas. And if I haven't done my job right, all these parts are going to be wildly different size. They're not going to fit together and they won't fit in the box that I have to put the elephant in at the end. Right. So we have to chop off the nose, we have to chop off the tail, whatever it is to get it to fit in the freaking box. So the key is to give them good parameters for what success will look like, but not define that success. So in my case, uh, I would, <laughs> my rule was, okay, I have 15 seconds, this Sharpie pen and this piece of typing paper, <laughs> done. And I would scan that in and stick it on there. And I'm like, this is kind of the shape that I'm looking for, you know? Right. I think I, I cause I saw your original sketch for uh, She-Goth. Oh yeah. And, and he's quite lean, almost wolf shaped yeah. compared to who, um, how he turned out. 
Correct. So yeah. So did you just pass that off, and then they kind of took that and and that that was yeah yeah exactly. They they just took that and, and went there with it because I knew what kind of shape and kind of profile that I wanted, uh, and then they played with it and, and it kind of made it their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do want to ask you about one specific boss in the trilogy because I think okay. it's one one of the best bosses. I'll do my best. It was a very long time ago. Very long time yeah. ago. But I'll <laughs> okay. see. Let's see if you remember. So it's in regards sure. to Quadraxis because I think that's oh yeah a, a blueprint. He's my favorite. Yeah, blueprint he's, he's of favorite. boss design. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. That's really kind. I appreciate yeah, it. Very, very. You know, it's probably one of the best boss fights in history of gaming, in my opinion. Dude, um, now you're sucking up. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, um, thank you. So, so what was the what was the process with that? Well, we knew what uh, the nice thing about the way we designed games because it was pickup driven, right? We knew how far apart the pickups were and what kind of uh, flow that was going to have, what the player had learned by the point they got to that boss. Right. And that's because what we used was, um, you know what uh, gameplay ramping is? Right? Uh, best okay. explain. Just, okay. just Okay, so gameplay yeah. ramping, you start off low, limited skill, and the, right. the intensity of the game progresses as you go up. Mm. Now, a linear ramp is like a Call of Duty or a Michael Bay film. It's like explosion, 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 bigger explosion, bigger explosion, bigger explosion. Oh, my God, more explosions. And it's over, right? Yep. So there's never a rest. There's never there, – it doesn't feel staged. It just feels like you're, you're, you know, you're just turning up the heat on the pan. It's getting more and more sizzle until it catches fire, right? That's a right. linear ramp. Mm. There's another form of ramp called stairs, right? So that means a stair is I start off here. I go up to the boss fight. I fight the boss. Uh, I get the cool thing, and now I proceed to the next step. Another boss, get the next thing, next step. Now, that's not quite what we did with Metroid, and this was kind of the genius with Metroid. The problem with this traditional stair step method is the intensity stays the same after you get the pickup that increases your power, right? right. Now I'm doing this cool thing, and now I'm fighting all the stuff. Blah, blah, blah. New boss, fighting all the stuff. Blah, blah. What we did was when you got to that, we would start off low, slowly intensify like a traditional ramp hit the boss fight then we would let off tension so it would go back down again a little bit to give you time to play with what you've mm. picked up right mm. to let you enjoy it for a little bit you're like oh cool yeah i've got the you know super missile oh suck it Boosh. you know all that stuff and as a player that's very invigorating right we didn't make it easy but we let off the intensity and the pacing of the conflict after you pick up a weapon so that as you approach, you know, then we start ramping it up again. Okay. Now it's getting more intense. And, oh, cool. You're fighting the boss. Uh. So by the time we got to Quadraxis, we had a, you know, spider ball and, and the, you know, bombs and, and boost ball and all this stuff. And uh, we had figured out really the limit of the kind of how big a room we could make and still keep 60 frames per second, which was our, our floor, right? Yeah. Never go below 60. Um, and uh, I remember figuring it out. I'm like, okay, what if it does this? And you have to go up the legs. And, and, uh, and the only reason that boss works is because we had a real genius uh, in charge of our camera system who unfortunately passed many years ago, uh, Mark Haig Hutchinson, uh, formerly of LucasArts, legendary programmer and easily the, the most capable programmer I think I've ever worked with. Uh, and he passed away from pancreatic cancer, a horrible, horrible disease a number of oh, years no. ago. Um, but he had an office next to mine. And so uh, I would build camera test environments and he would work on the camera and he's got a really great book. If you're, if you're a uh, game developer and you want the book on cameras, it's a uh, real-time camera development by Mark Haig Hutchinson. Look it up, buy it, own it. Uh, because if you'll notice in all the Metroid games, 
uh, you never lose sight of Samus, no matter what crazy, stupid thing you're doing ever. There's never a point in the game where you ever lose sight of your character ever. It's true. Yeah. And you're boosting, you're going behind walls, you're going in little tunnels, you're doing all sorts of really weird, crazy. And with Quadraxis, you're doing all sorts of crazy jump off things and, you know, moving and this thing's moving around. It's the size of a skyscraper. And, you know, and the reason that it works is because the camera system can handle literally everything, anything you can imagine that camera system can handle. Uh, and, and that's, that's an often overlooked portion of games that's critical, critical for success. And, you know, you look at games like, uh, Shadow of the Colossus, right? Yeah. Which in the game community is really well regarded, but it didn't sell very well. You know, you may not know that it really didn't do very well in the market. Uh, that's a simple game with big bosses and one character. That's all you got to keep track of. And it loses track of the character all the time. You have to yeah, manually reposition, yeah. right? And that's horrible right? And that's a simple problem to solve. Uh, and it's all about player control. The player needs to understand the parameters that they're operating in, right? Uh, because the surest way to have a player stop playing your game is to frustrate them, right? If they, if they feel they're being victimized by a poor, poor design, poor camera, poor gameplay. So the key to that is giving them the contextual control in the environment so they can succeed. So if they fail, it's their fault, right? They're like, oh, I missed the timing on that one. That's perfectly acceptable. A player can die any number of times in the game if it, they know it's their fault and they should have had it, right? Yeah. The moment that they're victimized, they put it down. So with Quadraxis, uh, we had the, 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 the difficult part was the uh, sonic visor, right? The sound visor. Mm, which right? is and a that, brilliant, brilliant game element that was carl's idea i have to give him props for that he was like what if we did a sound i'm like how would that work <laughs> now I, I i think that um visually we could have done a little bit better because it's a little bit tough to to jump into the sound visor avoid enemies and see where the sound things are coming from so i think we probably you know on reflection we probably should have just backed off the intensity just a little bit dynamically so if you go into sound visor we slow other things down a little bit just to kind of give you that but that's like water under the bridge but uh yeah so we, it was just figuring out the sequence and timing to take advantage of the systems that we had built up to that point in the player's familiarity with them because mm. i know cr crunch would have been a major <laughs> thing for for you guys obviously particularly well metroid prime one metroid prime one it was Metroid Prime 2 and 3, it was not. No, in fact, after Metroid Prime 1, we really rarely crunched. We had a changing of uh, of leadership between Metroid Prime 1 and 2. I thought I remember reading somewhere, though, with Prime 2 is you got given a deadline by Nintendo and you were about 30% into it. You don't, no, no? So, no, no, because... that's all. Probably three quarters of what you read is wrong. <laughs> okay <laughs> so good to know uh, with metroid with, with metroid prime 2 we had, they had originally said hey why don't you do a metroid prime one and a half right and that's where the multiplayer came from right so we spent we spent about six months playing with multiplayer just that was our play phase right just to figure out if we wanted to do it right okay so that what we did in six months is what we tacked on to metroid prime 2 that wasn't actually originally intended for Metroid Prime 2. That was just something we played with and we got oh. it polished enough and worked enough that we just attached it to Metroid Prime 2. So with two, there were a couple, there were two competing ideas for the game. One was a time travel idea. Uh, and the other one was the dark light world, which, uh, which me and another designer uh, worked together to, to kind of flesh out and Nintendo chose the dark light world. And the point of doing that 
was to simplify our production pipeline, right? So that we could use each room twice. That's smart. Right. And because mm. we were on a condensed, you know, Nintendo said they did want a condensed schedule because uh, they had first had us mess around for six months with multiplayer and then they changed their mind about what they wanted to do because Metroid Prime 1 was so well regarded. They're like, yeah, we should just go ahead and do that. Yeah. And we're like, oh, okay, we're going to go up with a design that, that does this. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. You know, that we, probably... had, we had some, yeah, we had some crunch, but it wasn't, it wasn't like the nine month death march at the end of Metroid Prime 1. Right. That was, okay. that was the worst. Yeah, well, uh, you mentioned uh, obviously off air that uh, it was it was pretty time time consuming because you were doing 110 hours at one point, weren't you? A week. Yeah, there were. I, I had uh, two times where I was there for 48 hours straight with one hour of sleep, and then like a couple 36 hour days. Uh, and for the last nine months, we were pretty much there 24 uh, seven, working be- on the game. But if you're not getting sleep, wouldn't at some point you'd start to see yes, spots? Correct. And you can't, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yes. So and it's all sp- autonomic reflexes. Yeah. <laughs> so how, totally. how, how are you supposed to do work when you, you your, your mind's not Well, we didn't. Properly. There was a re- there, there at the at the end of that time everyone was ready to quit, right? So we were we're like we're done. And I mean, I had a job offer. I had two job offers from two different companies. And uh to their credit, Nintendo realized what was going on and came in and and took over the company and bought it out. It's a and, and then put uh uh, Mike Kelbaugh in charge. Mike Kelbaugh is a sweetheart. He's real good. Real good. He was head of Nintendo's uh, QA department, and uh, he said, "You know, guys, give me a few weeks to turn it around." And he did. Was was there something uh, specifically that he did that changed the whole dynamic? All sorts of things, and I'm not going to get into the minutiae of it, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he restored faith in, in leadership. Yeah, that's good. Because I, I love I mean, working for Nintendo. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you, you hear about it quite a lot about crunch, and you know, it's yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore. I mean, it is. And uh, so, you know, to, to jump forward in time and space for a, a, a billion years now at Booz Allen Hamilton, which is an entirely different kind of company. It's a big fortune 400, 27,000 yeah, yeah. employee company. Uh, we set up a, a studio system inside there. We got five studios with 250 developers on staff. Wow. Uh, and so I sit in Austin um, at the, uh, this is going to sound really cool. The strategic innovation group. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And, you know, and my function is to uh, explore technologies that, that can help our clients, whether they're defense or government or commercial. We do commercial work. We do stuff with education. Um, but my studio is nine to five. Go home at five. Right. We don't we don't want to see you here. Leave. <laughs> and and Yeah. And so you get in, you get your work done because really your most effective hours are really the first four to five hours that you put in. I have heard day. that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really true, right? Especially with creatives, right? If you got you got creatives, and every single person who makes a game is an artist in one form or another. Whether you're a programmer, a designer, or, or an actual artist, you're a creator, right? And so because you're a creator, your your internal ego is wound up in your work product. Right. Mm. So anytime that you interface with another creator, remember you're in a studio full of creators, there's going to be a little bit of friction between like my idea is better, my idea is better, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, of my course. way, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, the best way for people to work through those things is to be rested, have a sense of humor about what you do, and have leadership that knows all those things and helps solve those problems. And you can't do that if you're working 100 hour work weeks. You know, that, that's why I haven't done, you know, worked for EA on the, you know, or done any of those Call of Duty kind of 
shooters. I don't want to do that. Well, why would you? It's productive. Yeah, yeah, I mean, thanks. I'll I mean, pass. particularly as you get older, right? I mean, it, those things aren't... Well, I think I'd be better at it now, honestly, than I was early on because I'd be a, a less emotionally... You know, my kids were young at the time and, you know, I missed you know birthdays of my kids oh, because right, you had yeah. the ship, right? Yeah. Um, nowadays, you know, I'd say, no, we're going to do this and <laughs> stick to my guns and, <laughs> you know... I'd probably save myself 30 hours a week. But, so, uh, but sometimes you do get staff that say want to work additional hours. So they might, so you say that they work till five, but do you ever catch them working over five and you're like, sure, go home. Sure. And it, well, sometimes, sometimes they're like, well, you know, they might be saying, well, I want to leave a little bit early on Friday or, or I'm not satisfied with where this is, you know, and I, I want to push it a little bit further. Mm. Um, and those things you just keep an eyeball on. Mm. right uh i'm not i'm not for stopping someone from working hard on something they're passionate about but people don't know their own limits when they're creating right that is true and so if someone pushes themselves too far when i need them in the clutch they might be checked out right yeah or or them or they might have a perception of the importance of something that might be skewed right to them that's critically important you know, piece of this entire functioning whole. Whereas from a perspective further back, now that if that slips three weeks, we can actually have this guy do that while you're working on that instead. And we'll just shift some, you know, some, mm-hmm. some production assets around and just cope, for, cope with it. You know, we're there to help. So it's, it's an art, right? It's balancing because the, the most important thing about uh, running a creative studio and being creative is to let people be creative and have fun with it right? Um, my aim is to give, give every single person I, that, that I work with and works for me uh, the best resume that they could possibly have. Sh- I believe in shipping games. I believe in shipping product. Uh, I believe in good design up front, minimal crunch, uh, and having fun while you're doing it so that even though your resume looks great, you won't want to leave, right? That makes sense. And, and, and the other thing is too many studios take their people for granted. I mean, there are studios that um, never ship anything that have people there for five or six years or eight years and they haven't shipped anything. That's destroying that person's career, right? Yeah. If you've got a studio that doesn't ship and you've got a staff full of people who haven't shipped games, they're worthless to other studios because you don't have a metric of their capability, right? That's unfair to your employees. Yeah. Do you, you think, know. is that something to do with management, like poor management? Like sure. obviously, because when you, when you, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, that's, yes, that's a pretty um, concrete answer. But in terms of say with anything, right? I mean, when you're working on some sort of project, there's always going to be curveballs, right? There's something you're well, sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, but the, you prepare for that, right? You, you, when you schedule things and you, and you put, a, put together your timelines, you build in time for those things. Right. How, how much so time do you usually build in? You twenty percent. Oh, is that the the rough time frame? Okay. Yeah, the percentage. And yeah. yeah, and so what happens is if you're right and there's very little of that, you get that time for polish, right? right. And, and it's and it's also about concentrating your design. So uh, I build along fundamental pillars. Right. I'll I'll pick three like three pillars. This is what the game is about. Everything that we do for that game has to support as many of those pillars as possible. Mm. Right. One of the pillars for Metroid Prime series was exploration, right? Mm. None of the pillars was shooting, right? 
So shooting was just something you did while you explored, right? Shooting supported exploration, but it wasn't a pillar, right? Moving, jumping vertically and horizontally supported exploration. Moving wasn't a pillar. Exploration was a pillar, right? So if you, if you concentrate your game design with a few clear things that you're going to build your entire game around, it simplifies all of your planning and your production pathways so that there's not a whole lot of um, feature creep that goes into it. Oh, I saw this cool movie where, you know, bullet time or whatever. We should add that to the game because it's cool. No, we don't do that. <laughs> that way lies madness. We should not do that. Save it for the next game, right? Uh, you, do you and, get and, tempted though? Do you get tempted to see of, something on of a film? Of course, right? Because yeah, you get yeah. excited about something. But I think the older I get, the more I realize that excitement is just about the new for that moment. That doesn't mean it's necessarily a good idea, right? Yeah. Was uh, it was it true? I mean, I read this, so I'm not sure if it's true, given what you just okay. said before. But sure. in, in Metroid Prime 3, the, the first fight with Ridley, that was inspired by Lord of the Rings, the two towers from the Gandalf well, and Balrog. Well, there, there was that, and there was a leftover early idea um, from Metroid Prime 1 that we didn't do. I wanted to do a canyon fight uh, where you were standing on the top surface of your ship while it was maneuvering down a canyon and you were fighting Ridley while he was flying around you in front of and behind. I wanted to do, uh -huh. you know, sort of a horizontal version of that where we, because I wanted to have the ship do something cool. Yeah. Right. Mm. And, and I was imagining kind of a Star Wars trench run with a giant, you know, alien dinosaur monster, <laughs> you know, with Samus on top of her ship running back and forth, choo, 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 you know. And, you know, being able to have the ship raise shields woo, and bounce Ridley shots off and do all this sort of stuff and being able to shoot down, you know, stretches of uh, arches of rock overhead and have it fall on Ridley. And and uh, they're like, Mike, yeah, no, that's I mean, <laughs> cool visual idea. We shouldn't do that. And I was like, ah, fine, you know, but uh, and so when uh, the uh, the Balrog fight, that was actually uh, Mark's idea, Pacini's and uh it was very much inspired uh, that whole visual of the falling. Yeah, totally. Okay. I think it's the best part of the film, right? Let's let's all admit it. Balrog fight when because yeah. I, I I read Tolkien when I was twelve, right? I, I read I read The Hobbit and then the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then dug about halfway through the Silmarillion at twelve years old, and and my mind was blown. I was like, Phew. and um, so when I saw that on on film, uh I sat there agog because I saw it in 70 millimeter, right? My, my wife, who's a huge uh, Tolkien fan as well, and my kids, because my kids are not grown, but at the time, my kids, you know, we're all sitting there in the theater just, just <laughs> utterly speechless, just utterly speechless. So, yeah, that had a, that had a big effect. <laughs> Um, so there's something that some people probably don't know about you, but you used to be very, very introverted as a kid, right? And then you took up performing How did you arts. find this stuff out? I do you? my research, Mike. Come on. Someone ratted me out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, by nature, by nature, I'm actually pretty in, pretty introverted. You do not seem that at all, and obviously, uh, you're very well spoken and articulate, and you seem quite extroverted well, now. So, how did you break I, I'm through not, that? I'm not really. Um, I'm a bookworm by nature. I'm a huge science fiction nerd. Uh, I read 100 pages an hour. Uh, yeah, that's, that's how I got that's to a, high school. That's a that's a yeah. cool ability <laughs> to that's add my to the resume. Trick, yeah. Um, <laughs> And with near total retention. So when I read something, it just sticks with me. Um, mm. So uh, 
when I was in a freshman in high school, uh, I wanted to change that about myself, right? I wanted to, I knew that I was a little bit more internalized, stuff like that. And, and my, mm. the rest of my family are very much extroverts. They're all type A, you know, charge out, let's go do stuff. Woo! And I'm like, I'll stay here and read the book. Perfectly fine. Uh, and, but I'm also a Norwegian. So I'm a big, robust, you know, guy. I'm like, I'm pretty physically capable. And, um, and so I was like, well, how do I do this? And I said, well, I should do uh, a play, right? In my, tw in my, I guess I was a high school, 14 years old and a freshman in high school. I said, I should go up on stage and force myself to do this, right? And it was a, a stage show. It was a high school uh, play of a musical called Oklahoma. And uh, I auditioned for it and they gave me one of the leads. And I was like, I had never it's, sang in front of anybody. Yeah, totally. Snow wrecking. Yeah, totally. Right. <laughs> and, and at the time, I was sweet on a on a high school girl. I, you know, I was. I can't say I was really dating her. We went on a couple of times, but I was really sweet on her. So I wanted to, you know, put my best foot forward. And she was in the show and and all that stuff. And, and I found I had a knack for it, right? Mm. Uh, and I got up there. I did a good job. I, I sang credibly. Uh, and I was like, wow. And it, but it was like putting on a suit, right? I had to psych myself into doing it and i learned the trick and, and uh my wife calls it the mike wicken show right so I, I i put on that kind of extrovert suit on me and i release all those normal locks that i have on on that little bit of uh extroversion that i think is in everybody because in the end, what I've come to realize, it becomes easier the older I get. Yeah, so the older I get, the, the less I care what people, <laughs> what people think. <laughs> I think that's, that's what's going on. Um, well, like, it's, yeah, it's, you know. it's a good thing to have. Yeah, and, and it is tiring, right? So like when I do a lecture and I get up and I, and I cut the fool in front of like, you know, 60 or 2,000 people, depending. Um, at the end of it, I'm just like wiped out. I'm like, because I don't get energy from doing it it's very mm. physically exhausting for me so by the end that time i end up with end up with another i'm just like take me home <laughs> well hopefully by the end of this uh podcast you won't be totally drained well i'm sitting down so i don't have to run around so it's actually not too bad <laughs> yeah, so. so so is there anything at this point in your career that you haven't done that you would still like to do because it seems like well, you've done most things I've done a lot of things, um, but I'm a lear lifetime learner. I like doing new things and I like figuring out new things. Um, at Booz, I've, I, like at Booz Allen, I've actually spent a lot of time with business management at a high level. You know, I've sat in lots of meetings with generals and and doing really complex uh, projects and, and captures and, and a lot of business level things that you don't get exposed to um in game development and, and to circle back on one of your previous comments you said it is the problem leadership right and i said yes we didn't explore that further um the problem with most uh game studios early on was that the people who owned game studios uh were programmers who made it rich on a game right now i'm in charge of a studio Hooray, I'm just going to do things the way I've always done them because it worked in the past. They don't they don't understand people management. They don't understand business. They don't understand uh, creatives. Right. So a lot of the old, uh, old hardcore studios 
were very much, yeah, we're going to work 100 hours a week and, and we're going to play hard. And, you know, <laughs> and and that's why you see a lot of, uh, particularly in the older studios, you see a lot of mismanagement. You see a lot of misogynistic tendencies because it was an all boys club. Right. Uh, and you see a lot of this behavior because the people in charge of those studios for a very long time were not trained to be leaders, right? They, they didn't go out and seek uh, to understand what a good leader does and how a good leader plans, right? And how, how a good leader sets your team up for success. You know, those just didn't enter into their vocabulary. Well, we were successful in the past. We should just keep doing this thing because that's what they understand, right? So much of the struggles we're going through now is growing up the industry right well, they're going to be quite adult. young yeah yeah they, they really are especially for the stupid amount of money involved yeah. right it's stupid right yeah well it grosses more you than know? television and film combined yeah i mean it's um, crazy. so i've done i've done like seven games in a row that have sold between one and nine million units right um so that's not hard right if, if you understand how to make games it's not hard to make a successful game and the amount of money involved in 1 million units is staggering, right? It's a staggering sum, hmm. uh, particularly at a $60 price point when you're no longer pressing discs for the bulk of your Well, it's mostly sales, digital, right? yeah, digital sales. Yeah. yeah. So with digital sales, multi-console deployment, if let's say I, say, I make a game that's a million units on Xbox, a million units on PlayStation, and half a million units on PC, so two and a half million units. My studio, after all the fees and you know licensing costs for the engine and everything else like that, my, school, my studio is gonna net maybe a hundred million dollars. That's- Or well, more. I, yeah, well, I suppose it depends on the, the, the um, how many people are within the studio though, right, doesn't it? Well, that's cost, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a 35-person studio for two years is going to run you between 6 to $10 million. Is that it? Yeah. Because uh, the average FTEs is $10,000 per FTE per month. Oh, okay. For some reason, right? I thought so it was more. If you ever want to figure out how much someone's burned, uh, and it's more in California, right? So if you're if you're developing in California, it's about 25% more expensive, uh, California or Seattle, because cost of living there is just so much higher. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, and that's why you're seeing a big migration to Austin, Texas and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no mm. state com income taxes. And, um, not, I'm in Austin, so. Uh, and I think we have like, we have a lot of studios here now, a lot of studios. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, it's, if you ever want to figure out how much someone's spending to to make a game, Figure, total up how many employees they've got working on it and multiply by $10,000 per month. Mm. That'll, give you, that'll give you a plus or minus 10%. So when you're working with like a Japanese company like Nintendo, what mm -hmm. is their style in terms of like budgeting, I suppose? And even know, well, with, well, with Nintendo, I didn't actually deal with the budget stuff. I knew the raw numbers, right? Mm. But I didn't have to deal with that. I was concerned with design. Mm -hmm. uh, with Nintendo. So I, I couldn't tell you the internals of that. I know that Nintendo was, uh, they, they were very, paid a lot of attention to our production pipeline. Yeah. And if we were, if we were running a little bit where they felt we were behind schedule, they would nudge us. Mm. You know, I like find, our, yeah, I find, okay. so, sorry, I was just going to ask in regards to East sure. and West 
Western design because I've heard mm-hmm. that Eastern design or in Nintendo's case, they really focus on the four, um, the the fundamental game mechanics, the core yeah. game mechanics. Mm-hmm. Whereas Western developers might focus more on world setting, story, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, and and you can tell the difference, right? So the reason that the Japanese do it the way they do it is because they know if the player package is rock solid, everything else becomes easy, right? And that's why we that we made Met- the Metroid Prime games that way. The reason they were successful is we nailed our player package up front, right? And so that that's why uh, you made, we made little linear progress over the first half of the game because we were prototyping everything and making sure the whole player package was rock solid and perfect and then poured the rest of the game in the second half of production. Because now we've established everything, we know everything works, it's gonna be a fun game, the rest of it is just adding it to the rest of the world, right? Whereas, and and this is a fundamental design issue, right? So, and tell me if I get too far in the weeds on this. So a game can look good, it could be the best looking game in the world and it'll fail if it doesn't play well. I agree, yeah. Okay, Uh, a game, uh can run it a thousand frames per second but if it doesn't play well if it's not fun to play it'll fail right um and i can give you examples of games that look terrible and run kind of poorly for what they do but is a brilliant design and succeed beyond their wildest dreams look at minecraft yeah simplest game in the world right it's ugly right but for what it is it's perfect right it's a perfect example of a game designed perfectly for what it wants to do with approachability and depth and as a toolkit that exceeded uh, succeeded extraordinarily um so when i design games the thing that's most important to me the single most important thing is design right making sure that your design is nailed before you spend any revs going down dry holes because scale creep is what you do when you panic, Mm. right? So, oh, this isn't coming together. We've got to come up with something. Story will never sell a game. I've always thought that, but it seems like the the, the AAA industry especially is focusing more on story and graphics. Yeah, because- Like like E3, like you won't even see gameplay. You'll see a cinematic. Yeah, because because they're marketing because what they're doing is they're making videos. This is about videos and putting it up on YouTube and it's visual hype, right? So, but look at the size of their teams though. I mean, Call of Duty, they're spending what? Half a billion dollars to make one? Yeah. Some, some, some ridiculous amount of money, right? With with a thou, like a thousand developers on staff, hmm. you know? What? You know, and that's because, and, and each of those developers does a tiny little thing. Like, what do you do? I make rocks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or I make, you know, and, and what's weird about it is uh, early on in the Japanese production uh, environment, they would have these big teams where everyone would have a t- tiny little thing. Like there, I remember at the time, Sony had a, a guy whose job was making uh, four pixel by four pixel texture maps. And that's it. 60, that's what he did. Yeah like 100 hours a week <laughs> i know i just set, set myself on fire that's uh, thank, thanks i'll pass if that's what game development is i don't want it um it, but we're kind of we've kind of on the high end of the triple a industry that's where they've gone right mm. and, and that's horrible for game developers right because um honestly from my perspective and, and i might be biased i want you to do everything you can do 
right? Uh, if you're an artist and you want to learn to program, let's do that, right? Let's find a mentor for you who will help guide you through this maze, right? If you're, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to bridge into, like I'm a lousy programmer, I can get by in C Sharp and C++, but that's not something I really enjoy, uh, which is fine because I've got plenty of other things I'm doing <laughs> at any given time. Um, but I want people to be broad, you know? So if I get hit by a bus, right? I want someone to be able to step up and say, okay, I've got this, Mike, don't you worry about it. Right. Yeah, well, the last thing you want to be doing is worrying while you're lying in hospital, right? Worrying that yeah, totally. nobody else right. can do you know, Yeah. Or, or my wife, uh, you know, or if I was still young and, and, and hadn't been married for 35 years and that life's mine, you know. But if, if my wife was pregnant in the hospital, right, I want to be able to step away for a month and enjoy my baby. Yeah. Right. Those things have life happens to everybody. And if you've got everyone doing these narrow kind of pieces, you don't have the flexibility inside of a team to have people grow personally. And take and take personal responsibility to step up and learn those things, mm. right? So, uh, and really, past about forty-five people, no one person can keep what everyone's doing in their head, right? Yeah. So, once you get above about a forty-five person threshold, there's no one person who knows what's going on. Period. You lose operational control, and when you lose operational control, what you do is you have cells that are semi-independent inside of your structure that may or may not be doing a good job talking to each other in production. That makes sense right? though. So yeah. that increases your production time. Then that means if you want to make your Christmas delivery, you have to increase the hours of those people to compensate for it because you need more raw work to come out. And you can see how that feedback loop starts, right? That's where crunch comes from. And there's so much of it. Mm -hmm. And it's just Amer ongoing. American studios just haven't, they haven't figured that out yet. Right. And it's startlingly obvious to me, right. Having, having done it, but, and it may be because I kind of bridge that divide between East and West Western. Well, I think most, most Western developers don't get the opportunities that you did. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they probably, when all you're shown is one certain perspective, it's hard to see yeah, anything from anything but, else. But if you can, if you're keyed into it and you're doing a podcast, yeah, that's true. Down on the bottom of the earth, they should have figured <laughs> it out by now, or the top, depending on your oriented. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is true. That is true. Yeah, yeah. But so I suppose you apply a lot of that model to your staff and your team. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so you're very much in tune with it. Yeah. 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 Uh, agility. Uh, we also uh, try to practice what I call lobotomized agile methodology. Uh, so you, you know what agile? Yeah. Well, agile works really well for programmers, does not work at all for artists, and usually does an okay job with designers, right? Just right. the nature of who they are as creators. Okay. So for a team, it doesn't work at all because if everyone doesn't follow your agile closely, your agile system, is worthless right so we cut out all the junk in all that right so basically we boil it down to daily stand-ups two-week sprints a producer who doesn't trust what you say and verifies what you say you're doing and we just drive through right our stand-ups are five-minute stand-ups what are you doing is there anything stopping you next 
right? For everyone on the team. It's that simple, right? And then we have a burn down chart, you know, and we have a producer go by and verify. And we have everyone uh, with estimates, like uh, I joke around, because if an artist gives you an estimate, it's usually uh, a longer amount of time than it really takes, right? An artist is like, yeah, it'll probably take me, you know, three days to do this. In reality, it's like a day and a half, right? And they're just not satisfied with it, when in reality, it's really good enough. Uh, with a programmer, it's the opposite. Programmer's like, yeah, I'll have it done in like three hours. No big deal. Three weeks later, you know, I'm trying to debug this thing. And, you know, so, so the programmer, you double the estimate and you add like 20% <laughs> when he gives you an estimate. And with an artist, you have it, right? You know, okay, that's fine. Because <laughs> I think because this often happens with politicians as well. But I would think that you would, uh, what is it, under promise and over deliver as opposed to overpromise and under deliver. It's about, it's about nature, right? It's about the nature of people, right? Programmers have have a nature of thinking that a problem is easier than it often than it often is because they can see a way they think it'll be be done, and then when you get into execution, it becomes because it has to interlace with so many other factors in a game. For example, mm. there are secondary relationships they may not have considered at the time that have secondary impacts that may change the way that you approach the problem. All sorts of things stack up, right? But for that initial thing that he's thinking about or she's thinking about, that's the correct solution, right? And it, it's correct as far as it goes. It's just all the other stuff in there that they're not factoring in. And so that's the nature, in, in my experience, and this is a broad brush. And there, there are programmers who are really good about it. And there are artists who are really, really good about estimation, you know, and those people are worth their weight in gold. But by and large, that's kind of a rule of thumb. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. You, you seem pretty knowledgeable about this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised more people don't follow this. It's, it's, it's a moving target. Mm. Right. And, and once you get in games, uh, you're running flat out to create. Right. So there's there's because if you're not if you're stopping and uh, not working, you're not making money for the company. Yeah. Right. So having someone come in and institutionally set up a system where everything functions correctly and you have these built in systems to to manage and reinforce um that takes discipline up front to do and some companies do a really good job of it you know retro historically had i mean i've worked for retro for many years now but uh we had it nailed it when i was still there yeah final question before i let you go uh how do you find time to still play games given your role at your work you have a family obviously and games are what you have to have yeah my kids are grown uh, and well, that, that helps. That helps. Yes. It does. Uh, I play in the evenings. Uh, I actually play games with my wife, and at hol- you know, and, and I play regularly all sorts of things. Like I'm playing Bullet Echo on my phone right now. I'm not a big phone game guy, right? But Bullet Echo is just. And, and before that, the only the only game I was playing on my phone was World of Warships Blitz, right? Because because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, eat torpedoes, you German battleship, you, and you know, I, I like I like the pace of it. It was slow enough, and the controls. Because phone controls suck. Let's let's admit it. Phone controls yeah, yeah. are just bad. Um, but Bullet Echo is a shooter of all things. It's a top-down uh, shooter. I'm giving you a free ad now, Bullet Echo. Um, but uh, it's a team-based shooter, top-down. And they found a control scheme and, and a mechanic that just really works. Uh, it, the, the, the pacing of it is slow enough, and, but the tension of it is high enough. Uh, that it just is, is just right. They've got it nailed. They've got it dialed in. And it's all about player package, right? It's all about control. 
Uh, and so like I play those things occasionally. PC games, uh, I play PC and console games off and on. PC games, I usually go back to older ones to kind of refresh myself uh, for lessons. I've been playing Day of, Day of Defeat Source. Went back and started playing that again recently. Oh, wow. uh, just because I wanted to kind of, I used to be a big Counter-Strike guy back in the in, in the day. You know, uh, early retro, we had a Counter-Strike team that we would play against other studios here in town, like Origin and stuff like that. I'm still amazed and, at how uh, popular it is. It's well, uh, yeah. It's uh, in the Mid East. It's actually really a big, yeah, yeah, big thing. It has been for many years. Uh, but Day of Defeat, uh, I went back and started playing that again, multiplayer, just to kind of because it's so crisp, particularly on a modern system with a big old graphics card in there. It runs at like a billion frames per second, so it's just effortless. And on a on a on a high bandwidth uh, Wi-Fi connection, I can just you know plop down my my surface and zip through it with with high performance because i want to i want to understand why you have such a clean uh precision with the weapons and the mechanics and player movement and understanding the parallax of lateral movement inside of a combat environment and you know how you can take your gun uh, even the bolt action car 98k and a, a crossing target at a distance of 50 or 60 meters you can shoot him in the head while you're moving laterally to him that's a hard math problem to solve right yeah uh, but the game lets you do it Right. So they've got their control mechanism, you know, really dialed in and they got their weapons kit really dialed in. Uh, I also play like MMOs. My wife and I have played World of Warcraft together for a jillion years since uh, since the first beta came out, which would have been two, 2000. Is that when it was? First beta? Something like that. A long, long time ago. Yeah. yeah. So we play off and on and we still jump in. You know, I have it at work. Are you going to play Metroid Dread when it comes out? Of course. Yeah, and uh, and I'll play Metroid Four too. Yeah, and yeah. for those who suppose, those who are worried, yeah. I was going to say it'll be good for you because you you will be able to play it as an actual player because you're not involved in the development, right? So oh you yeah, can totally so, like, step back and just yeah, not, yeah. I have to give Metroid. myself usually like six months or a year after I ship a game before I touch it again. Of course, right? Because you get over it, you'd probably be, be yeah, sick of the I'm game like, by the time you finished it. And, yeah. and Metroid Four will be great, right? Because a lot of the core designers and stuff on the team were guys who were there when I was there yeah so, so they understand they understand what a metroid game is it'll be great well hey mike thank you so much for taking the time out thank you didn't you. ask a single sound question and i thought you were like a sound guy i am a sound guy but i've spoken to a lot of sound soundies and obviously okay. only there's heaps of other stuff i wanted to ask you to be to be fair <laughs> like i could probably talk to you for five hours but you know uh, you'll need to thank uh your wife for me for stealing you for an hour um I will <laughs> um, so if anyone wants to keep up to date with any of your work, is there any places they can go? Um, not currently. I may, I may put up a, a, a site. I had a site for a while and I took it down because I wasn't happy with it. Um, I usually post stuff on my LinkedIn page. I encourage you to, if you want to link to me, feel free to, um, kind of an open book. Uh, I'm always up to crazy stuff doing, you know, I got pictures of me up at the North pole for some reason on <laughs> the project. <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, uh, LinkedIn for now, um, I'll announce when I get the new site up and running, it, it should be pretty interesting. I've got some stuff, uh, stuff cooking. That'll be, mm. it'll be pretty interesting. Cool. I, I look forward to hearing, hearing about it. I'm sure okay. I can, I'll, I'll ask you quickly one audio question. Okay. okay. That's right. So how long when you're working on audio, cause I know you're mm -hmm. working, um, the 3 a.m. some mornings and, and on sure. some of the uh, with Metro Prime. So 
what are the stuff what are the things that you're fine tuning are you are you getting down to like the nitty-gritty of like eq and and everything in terms yeah, of everything, and, everything. and the like sound re- and, yeah. yeah reverb what kind of balance it's going to have in the game what kind of uh uh how is it interfacing with the other sounds that you're going in going in and how does can you still hear it when you're shooting all the weapons can you you know uh what's the attenuation distance on it um with positional sound particularly you know we want to draw your attention in this direction during this point so we want to use all the tools that we've got available to us so you're massaging the sound envelope everything right so it's not just the tonalities and foley and and all the stuff that goes into making sounds it's understanding the environment you're going to be playing the sound in and then tuning that sound to the individual characteristics of the player package and, and the overall gameplay intent. But how do you do that in the instance where you've got a deadline and with sound, right? When you're hearing something mm-hmm. for too long, your ears start to get tired. So sure. it might sound good and then you go away and come back and it sounds terrible. Well, for, fortunately, uh, like with, with Metroid Prime, uh, we had a genius on team, Clark Wynn, right? Yeah. So Clark, Clark did all the sound effects and, and stuff. And he was a machine. I mean, I worked crunch, but I'm pretty sure Clark was either a robot or there's like he's cloning himself and just was rotating people out from under the desk or something. Uh, so Clark did the bulk of that. What he would do is he would use me as a foil for the, you know, he would say, Mike, come in, listen to this. Right. How does this fit in the environment? How does this do that? So I come in, I'm like, okay, we need to, you know, make it do this or, ooh, that's really cool. What if we push this or that? And because I was scripting all the gameplay and, and all the AI and all the bosses and stuff like that, I was acquainted with every single room and every single hallway in every direction and every game pay, gameplay pass. So because I was tapped into all of that structure and all of that gameplay, I could give them an instant answer for the tuning characteristics over time. This stuff is fascinating. So, so fascinating. Yeah. Hey, Mike, thank yeah. you so much again for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. I, you know, I love games and uh, it, it's a constant source of amazement to me how, how much life the Metroid Prime uh, series has with fans still after all these years. And, and I'm very gratified and, I, and, I'm, uh, and I'm thankful uh, to all of you, right? Because uh, it was a labor of love. And uh, the fact that the game still gets love from everybody is it, it makes my heart feel good. And, uh, and I'm grateful for it. That's cool. Well, you're you're a big part of um, a major part of history, really. Um, you turned a cool franchise into 3D and did it flawlessly. Um, yeah. Not flawlessly, yeah. but reasonably okay. So well, we'll I think it's flawlessly. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll just I'll just tell yeah. you this, but like it, that game came out at a time where I was I was quite down and I was quite depressed because a, a couple of things and a couple of things I was going through. But that game honestly got me through like some pretty tough times. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm glad it helped. Yeah. Genuinely. All right. Well, that's the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. Keep an eye out on all the stuff that Mike is doing. <laughs> I'm sure you have not heard the last of him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was the no show. Good. So, all right. <laughs> thanks, guys. Appreciate See ya. it. Take care.